Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. This is Denise Gielhart, and with me is Zelda Uvarovna, because I cannot be kept away. <laughs> I know. It's been so long since we've been, we recorded a new episode. It really feels like a long time. And I was, and it has been a long time, really, because you were mm-hmm. smart and we worked ahead for the holidays. Yeah. But um, gosh, it's so nice to be back on the microphone and talking yeah. about crazy stuff that we can hardly imagine actually happened. So yeah, and I'm and, getting my stuff together and finding a balance so I can fit this all in. <laughs> That's so awesome. And Ugh. hey, it, it looks like we have a friend joining us. We sure do. She joined us. Oh, gosh, it's been a while. Um, a couple years ago, maybe on our first season. Has it been season. that long already? But, um, First season. We we're just now starting our first official season. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I guess that's true. <laughs> our first several 40 plus episodes were, you know, just freehand. Now we're going to go on a seasonal format. But yes, we have with us Mira. And she's uh, coming all the way from Maine for this. Granted, yes. virtually. Um, yeah, on the verge of inclement weather. All of the snow that we didn't get in... Uh, the end, of, the end of November to mid-January is going to happen this week, apparently. Oh, fun. Yeah. You're so Will lucky. School... I know. <laughs> Will school be open? Probably not. Oh, interesting. I always thought that they would just be open no matter what because they're used to snow in Maine. No, we have, we definitely have, um, they closed down school, local schools from where I live on the border of New Hampshire all the way over to the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, including the colleges, everything got shut down. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Impressive. Do they make yeah. you work from home and do everything over Zoom? Ah, oh, lucky duck. We had like two days where we were expecting inclement weather and mm-hmm. they just made us work from home over Zoom. And I'm like, oh, we're never going to get another snow day again. Uh, yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that's one of the biggest problems with the um, COVID thing is they learned that we they can make uh, yeah. us work and do stuff at home, even school. Yeah. So we're anticipating some bad weather this week, but we're kind of 50-50 where we're at, whether or not we're going to get it. Yeah. And my okay. kids okay. will probably have school on that day, just virtually. Okay. So I get, Fun. and, and I have anymore. to work because it's a work day for me too. <laughs> well, I'll say one thing. One of the reasons why I think they don't do that here anymore is because so much of the population doesn't actually have access to reliable internet. And when we get mm. storms like this, we lose our electricity for a while. Oh, oh, wow. And so I think that's probably a big factor. I actually, I have a really morbid question, like to, to start off the whole topic. Mm-hmm. Should I ask it now or should I wait? <laughs> wait a minute, because we're going to catch up with each other a little bit because it has been a while. So what have you been up to, it's Zelda? Oh, my goodness. So much has happened. Um, unfortunately, we did have a funeral in my family. So oh, you know, that so sorry. was kind of difficult. One of my aunts passed away. I have mm-hmm. another aunt who's not doing very well. And so it's, um, you know, that's the hard part about being Gen X, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. This is the time when our elders are getting elderly. 
Um, fortunately, mm-hmm. my dad's doing pretty good and I got mm-hmm. to see him over Christmas. So that oh, was good. nice. Oh, good. And um, my stepmother, who is absolutely delightful and is convinced I'm not eating enough. And I'm like, look at me. I am definitely <laughs> eating enough. Um, I should have, and she had this amazing Russian feast with Ooh. like every good thing you could possibly eat. And, um, then she sent me home with leftovers. And so <laughs> I was eating borscht for days and it was amazing because I love some borscht, man. I do and too. So, good um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Good and borscht, it's the only man. beet thing I like. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll explore that in depth a little later. Um, I've never had borscht, actually. Oh, oh, well, you know what? I will make you some sometime. Okay. It's it's basically a vegetable soup. It's a little bit spicy. Um, I That's probably why I've never like had though. borscht, because it's vegetable soup, and I avoid vegetables at all costs. Okay. Oh, that's right. I forgot you're not a veggie person. <laughs> no, I, I am a veggie person. Well, and my stepmom, um, who's absolutely lovely, as I've said before, uh, just she's very generous to me, and she grows a lot of the the vegetables that they eat and cans them. So she sent me home with a couple jars of homemade tomato sauce. And so I cannot (laughs) wait to use it. I've been like, what special thing can I make? And so anyway, it's just, it was really lovely. And, but of course now we're back to work. Um, One of the fun things that did happen though, my friend Rob came down from Chicago over Mm -hmm. uh, my birthday weekend. Right. And we made arrangements to meet up with my brother and his family to go see the glow lights at the Missouri Botanical Garden. How fun. Oh, that is and so pretty. It was gorgeous. It was so beautiful. Aww. And my brother, all of his children, their spouses, the grandbaby. I mean, it was just like a, and we, then we invited a good friend of mine, Dee and, and her boyfriend to come over. And we just had this nice big group. And beforehand, fun. I wasn't expecting it. But we were, we had arranged we were going to eat dinner at their house and then go up to the botanic garden, botanical garden. Well, they had a mini birthday party for me. And I can't even say it was mini. Oh. It was balloons and a cake that Dee That's brought in. Awesome. And it was delightful and delicious. And I was, it was totally unexpected because it wasn't my actual birthday that we did this. So it was Aww. just like, it was really nice. It was, it was super, super fun. Yeah. It was so sad. Yeah. That so how about you, awesome. Denise? Well, you know, I had, I took the break and I enjoyed it. And I, I we Good. went down to Florida <laughs> for Christmas. And that was the first mm-hmm. time we have spent Christmas with my side of the family, my whole side of my family. And that include my sister and her family and my parents. Oh, nice. My parents come up every other year. But this was the first time we got to do it with their cousins and everything. And that was prompted because last year, at this time, my mom had was in the hospital with COVID, long-term COVID oh, developed. Right. Oh, and she, right. she, went, she first went in the hospital right before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me. I'm like, am I going to get this chance again? Yeah. So I need mm-hmm. to take the chance while I can. It also yeah. hit my parents who decided they were going to plan a long week for us this summer coming up. Very so nice. we're going to do something with them this week. So I never mentioned anything about us coming down for Christmas until the fall. Mm-hmm. And then we decided just, we were going to just do it. So That's we went down awesome. there and that was fantastic. So hmm. for a change, I wasn't working every day on, yeah, on family trees. I actually took the time to relax and enjoy it, good. which is helpful because now I get back yeah. into the genealogy. Yeah. I've got the energy and I'm, I'm not burning myself out, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. 
But speaking of burnout, because, you know, I, I like to take on extra stuff, apparently. <laughs> I have submitted my name to a local community college to see if I could teach a continuing oh, ed yeah. class and genealogy. Yay! I, I figured we can always I use a little this. extra money. And I wouldn't mind teaching it. it. It takes me out of just sitting at home and doing it. What a cool Why thing not to show others. You're a great teacher. Yeah. And I, oh I my used gosh, to teach. Good. And yeah. so I have an interview coming up in about 10 days. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so I'm just have a lesson plan. I'm going to start working on after this episode is done. And that is exciting. I've I'm got so ideas excited. going through my head. I'm just trying to work out the details. It Look just needs to be 10 to 15 teaching. minutes. And well, and think about it. You could actually like as homework assignments, give people lines from this or something. Yeah. Like that, you know? Well, and, and <laughs> They do have somebody, it came out, they do have somebody who teaches the basic genealogy course. So they're not necessarily mm-hmm. looking for that. I'm not quite sure where we can go with this. Maybe I could teach it mm-hmm. to the younger set. Mm-hmm. Or we can deal with, I'm really good at tree building. So I could maybe do a course on finding your, des- the descending line. That's what I was just going say, down like, the tree. Yeah. Those more sort of refined skills mm-hmm. are what they're probably going to be looking for. I would imagine. Right. And that's and what you, you can, need to do genetic genealogy, which is a exactly. big deal for DNA. Yes. So exactly putting it into that type of context. So exactly. I love it. I was going to use, it. I think the lesson I'm going to do is going to involve newspapers and how to use those newspapers yes. to gather family information and where to go once you have that information. Yes. I, I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're going to be so good at this. I, I so. know. So it looks like if I get this, I, I would start teaching either this summer or in the fall. So it's, it's down the road. So I have plenty of time to prepare, but yeah, Yay. I'm kind of excited. You should be. You're going to be that's great. so cool. Yeah. Thank you. And it's a topic that's fun. You know what I mean? It's it a topic is. you're good at. You're interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I can always yeah. use examples from the podcast. Yeah. It's so fun. <laughs> exactly. Art like and the, it, life imitating each other. Especially with the newspaper <laughs> stuff. Like, I couldn't find this, but when I went to the newspapers, this is what I found. And it gave me a clue that led me to this. So, yep. yeah. It's just, it's crazy. But it's awesome. We could probably speak a lot, and and my and Mira, I we will catch up with you more a little bit later. But we probably should get going with the yes. podcast. Yes, we should. <laughs> and oh boy, we have quite the topic today. Mm. Um, but before we start, I wanted to say I'm changing things up a little bit. Oh no! How I've done this in the past. What? Not in a. <laughs> Did we vote on this? No, we did not, but I think you're going to like it. <laughs> Go so, <ahead>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Could go you... ahead. I'll be quiet. Oh, you're too funny. Okay. Um, so I'm going to f- focus more on themes. So in the past, I've talked about this was their grandfather and their great grandfather. And it's great, but I, I don't like how chunky it gets. And so usually when I'm editing, I'm trying to take out the chunk. Right. So this time we're going to tackle stories associated with certain themes I found in different parts of the family. So like the themes I I found on the paternal line, the themes I found on the maternal, sometimes there's a little crossover on both. Yeah. And that way we can really emphasize the stories going forward. And, you know, I told you that this tree I found boring for the longest time. (laughs) Like I hated doing this tree. 
I was <laughs> like, I'm so done with this. How funny. And then I got to the maternal line. I'm like, ooh, this got ooh. interesting. Um, nice. But when I went back and I did it as themes, I got more interested in both sides of the tree again. <laughs> like, oh, this is actually okay. better than I thought. Right. So I think it helps overall mm-hmm. for everybody. I yeah. love this idea. Me too. So it organizes Zelda, the information and the or, sections. Or, yeah, Mira, do you want to tell everybody who we're going to be covering this time? Jeffrey Dahmer. That's a big Jeffrey one. Dahmer. And they just had that special, right? They just had that. Yeah, um, they did. Yeah. What do you call it? That miniseries. And so, even the kids at the elementary school that I work at know his name. It scares me. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and think about for a minute, you know, because we were like all in our 20s, right? Or yeah. hovering around 20 uh, when the name Jeffrey Dahmer hit the airwaves, right? Yeah, we were. Do you remember hearing about it like the when it was first came out yeah. vaguely mm-hmm. because all you heard was he was a cannibal there was yeah, a cannibal right. killer in wisconsin that's all i remember hearing well about and for it. me it was you know serial killer in wisconsin and, and i just remember thinking to myself that must have been like shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> 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 oh we love you mira <laughs> that is fantastic oh my gosh but right yeah wow. like and I then i didn't know that. yeah <laughs> i didn't know i didn't know any real details but like oh also gosh. i remember seeing his picture and saying to myself you would have fooled me yeah 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 seriously he looked very normal right yeah like his affect right so not just mm-hmm. his face but his affect mm-hmm. right Yep. Yeah. I remember what happened when he died, though. The news when that came out, it's like, I don't remember that. And I thought that's not too surprising. Yeah. 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 I remember that, too. Yeah. I do not. What happened? I don't remember. Oh, we'll get there. Well, you'll find out. (laughs) Part of the story. Good point. So, Zelda, you want to tell us all you found about Mr. Dahmer? Well, we've got one more thing to blame on on Ohio is what I want to point out. (laughs) That's where he's from. Um, but born May 21st, 1960, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer had a childhood much like many other children, really. I mean, his parents fought a lot. His mother was mentally ill and abusing painkillers and his father was absent for work a lot. But, you know, honestly, that's the background for a lot of us. And we didn't become serial killers, to my knowledge. Anyway, (laughs) uh, he had a younger brother named David and his parents got divorced right after Dahmer graduated high school. Right. Now, unlike many other children, Dahmer had developed some disturbing hobbies. So now we have to remember, you know, both his parents were very smart people and Dahmer inherited their intelligence. Right. And, you know, some people have estimated his IQ to be around 145. So he was a pretty sharp guy. But for his entire childhood, Dahmer was able to make the adults in his life believe he merely had a strong interest in the biological sciences. Meanwhile, kids his own age were freaked out by his practice of collecting, dissecting, breaking down, and preserving roadkill. A number of neighborhood pets went missing, and the other kids mm. always pointed to Dahmer, but the grown-ups just saw a polite, nerdy kid and brushed it off. <laughs> Mira's face. You know, it's... um I really feel all the adults failed him, because not yeah. only did they not notice his obsession with dead animals... 
they didn't notice he developed a drinking problem at age 14. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would show up at high school drunk and his parents never noticed. His teachers didn't notice. The other students noticed. But of course, you know, it's the 70s. Nobody rats anybody out. And Dahmer kind of became this bit of a class clown. He would mimic seizures and bleat like a sheep to get laughs because in the 70s, that's all it took to get laughs. Um, He did rarely hang out with anybody outside of school. Now, Denise sent me this really good article that was just like fascinating that was written shortly after his arrest. It's called the Dahmer Chronicles. It was published Sunday, August 11th, 1991, written by Keith McKnight in the Akron Beacon Journal. And there were a couple of stories from this that I was like, oh my gosh, we absolutely have to like talk about this. So the first one is, you know, he was a a guy who other kids described as didn't really want a whole lot to do with girls. Well, he finally summoned the courage to arrange a date for the obligatory senior prom. I'm reading directly from this article, by the way, because it was just, it's so well written. He managed to get a 16-year-old girl who was a friend of a friend, but he was so timid about the prospect that he had to have the friend ask her. Unlike most of the boys who wore tuxedos, Dahmer showed up without a jacket and was dressed in brown slacks and a vest topped off with a peculiar-looking long-stringed bow tie. According to his date, Bridget Geiger. Now, pause for a second and think, would you ever want to be known as Jeffrey Dahmer's yeah. prom date? I was, no, I was just like, well, probably mm-hmm. not. Oh, no. that's I just feel so bad for her. Um, but he seemed extremely nervous about the function and was terrified at the notion that she might try to kiss him. <laughs> when he gave her a corsage, he was afraid of sticking her. So Geiger's mother ended up pinning the flowers on her daughter on Dahmer's behalf. Well, that's not really unusual. So I'm surprised no, that made it into a lot the paper. of... A lot of guys have that. (laughs) Seriously. Um, When they posed for a prom photo in her front yard, he was holding his boutonniere in his right hand. He didn't say two words to me the whole night, Geiger said. And worse yet, when they arrived at the affair, he seated her at a table, then left. He returned about two hours later as Geiger was leaving with a girlfriend and her date. Jeff told me he was hungry and left and went to a McDonald's and ate four or five cheeseburgers, she said. I think he did because there were McDonald's wrappers all over the floor of his car. Needless to say, they left the prom early. Wow. A few weeks later, shortly after his June 4th graduation, Dahmer threw a party at his Bath Road home, a rare departure from the norm. He had never, ever had a party before. Yeah. He included his prom date on the list of those invited. But again, it didn't turn out to be quite what Geiger expected. There were five people, including Dahmer. There was no music. There was no food. Dahmer had decided to use the occasion to contact someone from the spirit world. Someone who had lived in the house before his family moved there. (laughs) Somebody had cooked up this idea of a seance, Geiger said. They all sat around a low table in the den. Geiger said Dahmer told her that the house was haunted and that an evil ghost sometimes appeared and talked to him when he was alone, telling him to do things that scare me. Holy shit. (laughs) She said she thought Dahmer was simply telling her stories to scare her. When they turned the lights off and the candle flared and sputtered at the table, she knew she'd had enough. She left and hasn't laid eyes on Dahmer since. But she's loud. Mm -hmm. All things considered, though, she said there were stranger kids at school and that he actually was a good kid who got a bad shake out of his high school years. Nevertheless, she is haunted by the question of whether the seance was held before or after 
June 18th, 1978. Dun, dun. Your face. Your face is so just. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know. I'm wicked expressive. It's so expressive. On June 18th, 1978, Dahmer graduated from being a torturer and killer of animals to a torturer and killer of humans. We'll get back to that. On the surface, Dahmer's young adulthood looked scattered. He flunked out of the Ohio State University due to his alcoholism, and he could not hold down a job. His mother had retained possession of the house in the divorce, but she had moved to Wisconsin with his then 12-year-old brother, David, so Dahmer was 18 years old, living alone, and barely scraping by. Finally, his dad convinced him to enlist in the Army. Now, Worst idea ever. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> troubled kids, send him to the army. That'll straighten him out. So far, I don't see that it really does. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes it, it can help one who's a little lost, not troubled. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, how many serial killers did their parents ship off to the military? There's been I so mean, many. There have been a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, they get good skills. Yeah, <laughs> not a kill. Oh, God. Right? <laughs> yeah. True that. This is how you observe people without them knowing. This is how you... <laughs> here's how to actually fire that rifle and hit something exactly um so Dahmer seems to have done reasonably well that first year and trained to be a combat medic again heavy interest in the biological sciences then his alcoholism re-emerged and hating the army he did everything he could do to get discharged he was eventually discharged just a few months before his enlistment was up on march 26 1981 having been found unsuitable for military service due to alcohol abuse. Talk about a guy who can't win for losing, right? Like Mm -hmm. he goes through all of that. He's basically put on the military version of house arrest the last year he was serving. And then he just gets out a few months early anyway. I'm just like, he didn't think that one through, I think. So a fellow soldier drove him to the airport. And upon leaving, Dahmer told him, someday you'll hear about me again. Now, at the time, he didn't see anything insidious in what that man had just said. He just thought, oh, good. He'll get his life together and make something of himself, right? Right. Yeah, we all wished that had happened. But after his discharge, he bummed around Miami, Florida for a few months before his father and stepmother convinced him to come back to Ohio. Just a few weeks later, Dahmer got arrested for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest when he showed up drunk at a hotel bar with an open bottle of vodka and refused to leave. And of course, they begin singing, how do you solve a problem like Jeffrey? And they decided that it was Dahmer should, who should move in with his grandmother in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as the only person left in his life who had not completely given up on him. And, you know, Dahmer loved his grandma. He helped her out around the house and eventually got a job as a phlebotomist. So for my younger listeners, um, a phlebotomist is a person who draws blood at you know at like legally like they're supposed to <laughs> like he was probably good yes. at his job he probably, he was, probably was, was very good at his job again a strong interest in the biological sciences yes and blood but he lost his job after getting arrested for exposing himself so yeah do it yep eventually he landed another job as a mixer at the ambrosia chocolate company in downtown milwaukee for 825 an hour now, that was real money back then. The minimum wage was three thirty-five an hour, and money did go a lot farther back then. So Dahmer, he's got money. He's got a place of his own. And because um, at, at this point, he moved out of his grandmother's house. Um, and he started hanging around bathhouses and hotels, finally coming out as gay and having a heyday meeting up with handsome men. 
And he managed to hang on to his job through two more arrests. One for, you know, <clears throat> touching himself in front of children and one for luring a 13-year-old boy into his apartment and sexually molesting him after Dahmer had been kicked out of his grandmother's house. So the Ambrosia Chocolate Company finally fired him on July 15th, 1991. Two weeks later, Dahmer's demonic side activities were exposed when a man wearing handcuffs frantically flagged down a police car. What the police found was a house of horrors. You see, during this time, Dahmer wasn't just a shiftless drunk. He was a serial killer, child molester, necrophiliac, rapist, and a cannibal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was charming. He covered all the bases. All in all, Dahmer confessed to killing 17 men and boys going back to 1978. Yeah. So now we're going to get into some of these details that I referenced earlier. 12 were killed in his North 25th Street apartment. Three victims were murdered and dismembered at his grandmother's West Alice residence. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that when this happened at his grandmother's house, and he was keeping souvenirs from this, it yeah. got very smelly. And he you was telling think? her, oh, it's just dead animals that I'm finding along the road. And she just couldn't stand it anymore. But he didn't get kicked out till he brought a boy home. And that was, she's like, "I'm enough, enough. And... Wait, wait, wait. Okay, that that the smells yeah. were enough, but the mm -hmm. the fact that he was gay was too much. Right, basically what you're saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His mother was accepting that he was gay. His grandmother could not. So that was the line too far for her. Yeah, I don't get that. And that was the grandma on the Dahmer side, by the way. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Paternal that side. That was dad's side. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, his first and second victims were murdered at his parents' home in Ohio and at the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee, respectively. A total of 14 of Dahmer's victims were from various ethnic minority backgrounds, with nine victims being black. Wow. So Most of Dahmer's victims were killed by strangulation after being drugged with sedatives. Now, this is where... Okay, so, Denise, you know my style. I do not like getting into details because it's horrific and gross. So I thought if you want, I will describe in general how people died and then never refer back to it again. Or yeah, can just and you it. don't need to get into details. Do what you're comfortable with doing. Okay. Because it's so God awful, I'm going to go ahead and share some of it because okay. um, I think the it torture that he put people through before they passed away, before he right. murdered them, they didn't just pass away. Yeah. Um, was, uh, frankly, unbelievable and something out of a horror movie. So his first victim was killed by a combination of bludgeoning and strangulation. And his second victim was battered to death uh, with one further victim killed in 1990, who died of a combination of shock and blood loss due to his carotid artery being cut. Oh. Four of Dahmer's victims in 1991 had holes bored into their skulls through which Dahmer injected hydrochloric acid or later boiling water into the frontal lobes. Oh in an attempt goodness. to induce a permanent submissive unresistant state. This proved fatal, but Dahmer said that wasn't his intention. He just wanted to basically make zombies out of them. Right. He wanted like Science. real life blow up dolls. He right. did. He did. In fact, um, he mentioned during his confessions that um, the times that he had consensual sex with men, um, he got really angry when they moved around too much. He didn't like it. 
And so, yeah, he preferred having sex with dead things because they didn't move and they were under his complete control. Typical man. So you got, you got to have dark humor when you're dealing with dark stuff sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I just am like, my heart just goes out to these families and these victims because Mm -hmm. they, they didn't do, I mean, like literally they did nothing wrong. They were just living life and they came across the wrong person. Well, here's the thing. Like what's, what's even worse though, in my mind is that Mm -hmm. we're talking about a time in our history Right now, it's feeling like a regression. But right. we're talking about a time in our history when being gay wasn't super acceptable. And so right. to, to feel like, like not only not only to trust, but like feel like you have a safe space to mm-hmm. be yourself mm-hmm. yeah, in a way that was kind of unacceptable. It's like, it must have felt glorious. It must have been lovely. You know what I mean? And then to find out that, you know, right. you picked the wrong person. Right. Because it's bad enough when you pick the wrong person. The lack of action of the police for these missing yeah, they didn't care. gay oh, yeah. men, especially the ones that were of color. Of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's what I mean. Yeah, it, is like, it wasn't bad enough that they were gay, standing. right? Mm-hmm. But also that they were that they were people of color. Yeah. It's like as mm-hmm. if they ha- didn't have to deal with enough from white men. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and it gets more horrifying as we go along with okay. how this was all handled. That was a little pause. So continue. So his very first murder occurred on June 18th, 1978. So remember that seance we talked about and the girl was like, Mm -hmm. did it happen before or after June 18th? And they're not really sure. But the reason it's horrifying is that was the night of his first murder. Stephen Mark Hicks was only 18 years old when he was last seen hitchhiking to a rock concert in Chippewa Lake Park in Bath, Ohio. By Dahmer's admission, what caught his attention hits Hicks hitchhiking, wow, say that 10 times fast, Mm -hmm. was the fact that the youth was bare chested. He was bludgeoned with a dumbbell and strangled to death with this instrument before being dismembered, remains pulverized and scattered in a woodland behind Dahmer's childhood home. 1987, November 20th, Stephen Walter Tuomi, 25, killed in a rented room at the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee. Dahmer claimed to have no memory of murdering Tuomi, yet stated he must have battered him to death in a drunken stupor. No remains were ever found. Now, what's interesting is when he's charged later with murders, he is not charged with the murder of Stephen Tuomi because there was no actual evidence. And at the right. time, the Milwaukee Police Department, uh, not the police, the prosecutor would only bring cases where they knew that they could convict. So, right, right. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of other people to take that the place of that. So still. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With evidence. Yeah. So in 1988, there were two more murders. January 16th, James Edward Doxtater, age 14. He met Dahmer outside a gay bar in Wisconsin. Doxtater was lured to West Alice on the pretext of earning $50 for posing for nude photos. Dahmer strangled Doxtater and kept his body in the basement for a week before dismembering him and discarding the remains in the trash. No remains were ever found. March 24th of that same year, Richard Guerrero, 22, drugged and strangled in Dahmer's bedroom at West Alice. Dahmer dismembered his corpse in the basement, dissolved the flesh in acid, and disposed of the bones in the trash. He bleached and retained the skull for several months before disposing of it. No remains were ever found. Now, one thing that's been an interesting study with all of the murders that he committed is the time lapses between things. Yes. 
And there has been some speculation that there actually were a number of other people that he killed, but he just never admitted to them. Now, in the years immediately following his conviction, there were a lot of people who were trying to tie him to a lot of different unsolved murders. Right. Um, these are the only murders he's been directly tied to. Yeah, because it seems strange that he would start in 1978 and then skip yeah. seven years. Yeah. In fact, that time in Germany, the German officials, you know, they got it on too. So here are unsolved murders from the time he was in Germany. Mm -hmm. But again, nothing quite matched up. So right. um, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, just means they can't prove it. Or the it could be under the missing persons where the body was never found type of situations. Right. Mm -hmm. So sad. Yep. So in 1989, he was restrained and only murdered one person. On March 25th, Anthony Lee Sears, he was actually the last victim to be drugged and strangled at Dahmer's grandmother's residence. And he's also the first victim from whom Dahmer permanently retained any body parts. His mm, preserved his skull and genitals were found in a filing cabinet following Dahmer's arrest in 1991. 1990, he starts to ramp up. May 20th, Raymond Lamont Smith, he was also known as Ricky Beeks. He was the first victim to be killed at Dahmer's North 25th Street apartment. He was a male sex worker whom Dahmer encountered at a tavern. Dahmer gave Smith a drink laced with sleeping pills and strangled him on his kitchen floor. And his skull was spray painted and retained. Mm. June 14th, Edward Warren Smith, age 27, a known acquaintance of Dahmer who was last seen in his company at a party. So Dahmer acidified Smith's skeleton. His skull was destroyed unintentionally, um, but no remains were ever found. September 2nd, Ernest Marquez Miller, age 22. Miller was a dance student whom Dahmer encountered outside a bookstore. According to Dahmer, he was especially attracted to Miller's physique. He was killed by having his carotid artery severed before being dismembered in the bathtub, with Dahmer storing his entire skeleton in the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet, and his heart, liver, biceps, and portions of his thighs in the freezer for later consumption. Cannibalism starts to kick in. Yep. September 24th, David Courtney Thomas, 22. Encountered Dahmer near the Grand Avenue Mall. He was lured to Dahmer's apartment on the promise of money for posing nude. Once a laced drink had rendered Thomas unconscious, Thomas decided he wasn't his type. Nevertheless, Dahmer strangled him, took Polaroid photos of the dismemberment process, and no remains were ever found. Mm. 1991. Okay. He is definitely turning up the, the heat on this at this time. February 18th, Curtis Durrell Strotter, age 17. Approached by Dahmer as he waited a bus stop near Marquette University. Dahmer lured Strotter to his apartment where the youth was drugged and then handcuffed and strangled before being dismembered in the bathtub. His skull, hands, and genitals were retained. April 7th, Errol Lindsay, age 19, the first victim upon whom Dahmer practiced what he labor described to investigators as his drilling technique. Well, we're just going to fast forward through that and say he flayed Lindsay's body and retained the skin for several weeks. His skull was found following Dahmer's arrest. May 24th, Tony Anthony Hughes, 31, a, another person lured by Dahmer to, the pro, to his apartment with the promise of posing nude for photographs. As Hughes was deaf, he and Dahmer communicated using handwritten notes. His body was left on Dahmer's bedroom floor for three days before being dismembered with Dahmer photographing the dismemberment process. His skull was retained and identified from dental records. Mm. 
This next one is the one that will break your heart if it hasn't been broken yet. May 27th, Canaric Synthesomphone, age 14. Now, remember there was a, a boy that Dahmer had assaulted back in 1988? Yes. This is his younger brother. <gasps> no. Two boys no. from the same family. And this young boy was drugged and had hydrochloric acid injected into his brain before Dahmer left the youth unattended as he left the apartment to purchase beer. When he returned, he discovered Synthesome phone naked and disoriented in the street with three distressed young women attempting to assist him. Now, I heard an in-depth podcast on this particular situation, and mm -hmm. it is the more details you know, the more infuriating it is. Right. Um, these young women were the daughter and granddaughter of one of his neighbors, and they were women of color. Right. And when the police arrived, Dahmer persuaded the police that he and the boy were lovers, and the boy was 19, and that he was just intoxicated. Oh, my word. Yes. And so the women are going, he's, he's just a boy. Yeah. He's just a boy. And he was like bleeding from his rectum. He was bruised. He was obviously disoriented. And when officers, and I'm going to say their names because God love them, they continued to work as police and retired with full pension. When officers John Bowserzak and Joseph Gabrish responded to a call about a naked Asian boy running through the valley near Dahmer's apartment, they took Dahmer's name and other information, but did not write a formal report or run Dahmer's name through the police computer. If they had, he would have been flagged for a previous conviction from the 1988 molestation of his brother. Yeah. Right? But they didn't even do that. They didn't even because do the bare freaking minimum. Why well, I, I believe and, black residents. And these women are just like beside themselves because like, don't send him back. There's obviously a problem. And of course, the women were of color and the police did not give a rat's ass what they had to say. So, um, so they gave this little boy back to Dahmer and Dahmer killed him and his head was retained in the freezer and his body dismembered. <sighs> so, I mean, the fact that they retired and get a police pension is infuriating. Yeah. Absolutely. Infuri I don't even know how his family. Uh, wow. Okay. Deep breath. Focusing. Huh. Mm -hmm. June 30th, Matt Cleveland Turner, age 20. On June 30th, Dahmer attended the Chicago Pride Parade. At a bus stop, he encountered 20-year-old Matt Turner and persuaded him to accompany him to Milwaukee to pose for a photo shoot. Turner was drugged, strangled, and then dismembered in the bathtub. His head and internal organs were put in the freezer, and his torso subsequently placed in a 57-gallon drum Dahmer purchased on July 12th. July 5th, Jeremiah Benjamin Weinberger, age 23, met Dahmer at a gay bar in Chicago and agreed to accompany him to Milwaukee for the weekend. Skipping mm. ahead. Wainer's decapitated body was kept in the bathtub for a week before being dismembered, his torso placed in the 57-gallon drum. Wow. Are we done yet? No, we got two more. Uh, okay. You're doing July good. 15th, <laughs> Oliver yeah. Joseph Lacey, age 24. He was a bodybuilding enthusiast and Dahmer enticed him to his apartment on the promise of money for posing for photographs. That was a good tactic. Lacey was drugged and strangled with a leather strap before being decapitated with his head and heart being placed in the refrigerator. 
His skeleton was retained to adorn one side of the private shrine of skulls and skeletons Dahmer was the process of creating. Ugh. July 19th. Joseph Arthur Braidhoff, age 25. Braidhoff was a father of three children from Minnesota who was looking for work in Milwaukee at the time of his murder. He was left on Dahmer's bed for two days following his murder before being decapitated. His head was placed in the refrigerator and his torso in the 57-gallon drum. Mm. Mm. So how were Dahmer's deeds discovered? On July 22, 1991, Dahmer approached three men with an offer of $100 to accompany him to his apartment to pose for nude photographs, drink beer, and just keep him company. Wait, three? One of the trio, three men, three men. So he was offering it to all of them or just one? Yes, all of them. Wow. He's he like, come bold. on over he to my place. Bold. Yeah. He was getting bold, right? Um, one of the trio, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards, who is a man, agreed to accompany him to his apartment. Upon entering Dahmer's apartment, Edwards noted a foul odor and several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which Dahmer claimed to use for cleaning bricks. At approximately 11.30 p.m. on July 22nd, Edwards flagged down two Milwaukee police officers, Robert Routh and Rolf Mueller, at the corner of North 25th Street. The officers noted that Edwards had a handcuff attached to his wrist, whereupon he explained to the officers that a freak had placed the handcuffs upon him and asked the police if he could, they could remove them. When the police officers' handcuff keys failed to fit the brand of handcuffs, Edwards agreed to accompany the officers to the apartment where Edwards stated he had spent the previous five hours before escaping. How did he escape? Um, Dahmer took his eyes off of it, was not able to uh, handcuff both of his hands. Right. When he took his eyes off of him at one point during the evening um, and ha- did not have the knife with him, Edwards punched him and ran. And so that's how he got yeah. out. When the officers arrived at apartment 213 after midnight, Dahmer invited them all inside and acknowledged he'd placed the handcuffs upon Edwards, although he offered no explanation as to why he had done so. At this point, Edwards divulged to the officers that Dahmer also had brandished a large knife upon him and that this had happened in the bedroom. Dahmer made no comment to this revelation, indicating to one of the officers, Mueller, that the key to the handcuffs was in his bedside dresser. As Mueller entered the bedroom, Dahmer attempted to pass Mueller to retrieve the key himself, whereupon the second officer present, Ralph, informed him to back off. In the bedroom, Mueller noted there was a large knife beneath the bed. He saw an open drawer which, upon closer inspection, contained scores of Polaroid pictures, many of which were of human bodies in various stages of dismemberment. Mueller noted the decor indicated they had been taken in the same apartment in which they had been standing. Mueller walked into the living room to show them to his partner, uttering the words, these are for real. Oh, wow. When Dahmer saw Mueller was holding several of his Polaroids, he fought with officers in an effort to to resist arrest. The officers quickly overpowered him, cuffed his hands behind his back, and called for a second squad car for backup. Now, I have to say, these are two policemen I really respect. Right. Because had that been me, no matter how well armed I was, no matter how well I could fight, I would have run screaming from that space. It would have been like, holy shit. So, yeah. Yeah. But they stayed, they got back up, and the officers showed up. So, at this point, Mueller opened the refrigerator to reveal the freshly severed head of a black male on the bottom shelf. Oh. 
As Dahmer lay pinned on the floor underneath Ralph, he turned his head toward the officers and muttered the words, for what I did, I should be dead. A more detailed search of the apartment conducted by Milwaukee Police's Criminal Investigation Bureau revealed a total of four severed heads in Dahmer's kitchen. A total of seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, were found in Dahmer's bedroom and inside a closet. Mm. Investigators discovered blood drippings upon a tray at the bottom of Dahmer's refrigerator, plus two human hearts, a portion of arm muscle, each wrapped inside plastic bags upon the shelves. In Dahmer's freezer, investigators discovered an entire torso, plus a bag of human organs. And I'm going to move forward. Okay. Elsewhere in the depart in the apartment, investigators discovered two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and in the 57-gallon drum, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in the acid solution. A total of 74 Polaroid pictures detailing the dismemberment of Dahmer's victims were found. Oh, boy. I can imagine experiencing cognitive dissonance, like looking at the pictures and just not being able to process what the hell I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. In reference to the recovery of body parts and artifacts, the chief medical examiner later stated it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. Weird. Also, I don't want steak anymore tonight. (laughs) Tomer readily confessed to his crimes and added he was holding on to some body parts to create an altar and showed police the sketch he had made. And he ate parts of some of his victims so they could always be with him in some way. On July 25th, 1991, Dahmer was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, he had been charged with a further 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. On September 14th, investigators in Ohio, having uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in woodland behind the address in which Dahmer confessed to killing his first victim, formally identified two molars and a vertebrae with X-ray records of Hicks. Three days later, Dahmer was charged by authorities in Ohio with Hicks' murder. Now, um, he wasn't charged with the attempted murder of Edwards or, as we said earlier, the murder of Tuomi. Um, At a scheduled preliminary hearing on January 13th, 1992, Dahmer pled guilty, but insane, to 15 counts of murder. They had a trial, but it wasn't as far as guilt or innocence. It was, was he insane or not insane? Right. Attorneys at Dahmer's trial debated whether he suffered from either a mental or personality disorder. The prosecution claimed that any disorders did not provide Dahmer of the ability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or deprive him of the ability to resist his impulses. Defense argued, uh-uh, and said Dahmer suffered from a mental disease and was driven by obsessions and impulses he was unable to control. On February 15th, the court reconvened to hear the verdict. Dahmer was ruled to be sane and not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of the 15 murders for which he was tried. Although in each count, two of the 12 jurors signified their dissent. Mm -hmm. On this date, Dahmer's attorney announced his client wished to address the court. Dahmer then approached a lectern and read from a statement prepared by himself and his defense as he faced the judge. In this statement, Dahmer emphasized he had never desired freedom following his arrest and that he frankly wished for his own death. He further stressed that none of his murders had been motivated by hatred, that he understood that nothing he said or did could undo the terrible harm he had caused to the families of his victims in the city of Milwaukee, that he and his doctors believed his criminal behavior had been motivated by mental disorders. Dahmer added that this medical knowledge had given him some peace 
And although he understood that society would never forgive him, he hoped God would. God's a lot nicer than me. Um, Dahmer closed his statement with, I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Thank you, your honor. And I'm prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration. He then returned to his seat to await formal sentencing. Three months after his conviction in Milwaukee, Dahmer was extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. In a court hearing lasting just 45 minutes, Dahmer again pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st, 1992. Now, Dahmer reportedly found Jesus in prison and was baptized. On July 3rd, 1994, a fellow inmate tried to slash his throat to kill him, but was unsuccessful. On November 28th of 1994, fellow inmate Christopher Scarver succeeded where others had failed and bludgeoned Dahmer to death with a metal pipe and nearly killed another inmate who did survive. Dahmer had stated in his will that he wished for no services to be conducted and that he wished to be cremated. In September 1995, Dahmer's body was cremated and his ashes divided between his parents. Owing to a disagreement between his parents as to whether Dahmer's brain should be retained for medical research, this organ was initially retained, but also cremated in December 1995. Yeah. In 1996, Dahmer's estate was auctioned off for the benefit of families of his victims. A civic group purchased all of Dahmer's belongings and destroyed them. And that is the story of Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer, a horrible human being. The end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, <sighs> I wanted to, I, I almost popped in. I was talking to Chris, Chris, my husband, he knows we were doing this episode. And he goes, oh, I know somebody who was there when Dahmer was arrested. Oh my gosh. So apparently he, he, they weren't neighbors at the time, but their former neighbors, husband was a police officer and he was at the police station when they brought Dahmer in. What? Oh my gosh. And apparently he was freaked out about it for days. Wow. But so, yeah, I just, this is the Midwest. Yeah. You know, his parents, I mean, obviously this is horrible. I mean, imagine finding out your son is a serial killer. Um, I'm not going to go into like what happened with all of his parents because I I know that Denise is going to do all that. Um, but I just am like, so sorry for them. I am so sorry for the victims and the oh, yeah. victims' families. Yeah. And I'm really sorry for the people who had to clean out that apartment and the people who had to process the evidence. Right. And it was just like, there's just this, these ripples of horror about this case. Right. So, and the women who knew it was going on essentially, right? These well, yeah, women I, you, you who were to- imploring the police to do something. Mm-hmm. And had the chance to save a 14 year old kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hate yeah. that. I just hate that. So it's my turn. Hold on a second. We're going to try this. Let's see. This is the lighter part of the episode. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> do that again. Do it again. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So that's a fun sound. Yeah. Well, th- it's it's fun to throw in for transition. Yeah. So the other day at work, we were discussing. I, actually, I wasn't even discussing it, even though I knew we were about to do this. Somebody was talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. And they were talking about how it's probably all the mother's fault. 
because of the drugs she took and maybe when she was pregnant it caused this and all this thing because this is what has been perpetuated in the media Mm -hmm. is that she was at fault so it's common thinking even wikipedia and many books seem to put the blame quote unquote on his mother Joyce and that women are easy scapegoats. Yeah. And it's almost, I mean, that goes for most serial killers. I always try to see, well, is it the mother's fault? Mm-hmm. But you know, we know that it's not as simple as that, but I'm not sure we know the whole story and we likely never will. What I can say is that my research led me to see things differently than have been portrayed. Yes. So I'll let you guys form your opinions and the audience form their opinions based on what I share with you. So let's get to Jeffrey's parents. We'll start with his mom, Joyce Annette Flint, and she went by the nickname Rocky. Um, oh, that's fun. Yeah. yeah. Joyce was born in February 1936 at Columbus, Wisconsin, <laughs> a small town 30 miles to the northeast of the state capital, Madison. She was the oldest of seven children. Her time in Columbus would be short, though. By 1940, they were now living up near Eau Claire. Then it was World War II. So her father went off to war and the Army Air Corps, while she, her siblings and mother remained up north until after dad returned home from war three years later. It was after her dad came home that the family would make Milwaukee their home, at least for a time. According to the 1950 U.S. Federal Census, the Flint family lived at 2477 West 8th Street with dad working as a bus driver. By the way, this address isn't that far from where um, Dahmer would end up living and committing the murders. Only within like five to six miles. Wow. Just seven miles to the southwest of the Flints in West Alice, a suburb of Milwaukee, lived the Dahmer family. Five months after Joyce was born, Lionel Herbert Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, the oldest of two children. At some point, Joyce and Lionel obviously met. How and when is unknown. And I, I hunted to see if I could find anything in interviews, any mention. It's never brought up. What is known is that they got married at the First Presbyterian Church in West Allis, Wisconsin, on August 22nd, 1959. Jeffrey would be born 10 months later in Milwaukee. Now, as you covered briefly, the marriage wouldn't last. <laughs> And much of the information on the relationship I got um, that you find on Wikipedia comes from the book, mm-hmm. The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, written by Brian Masters. It was published in 1993. The author mm-hmm. said he reached out to Joyce for her perspective, but never got it. She wasn't interested in talking to him. In the yeah. book, Masters claimed that Lionel Dahmer, a quiet analytical scientist, tried to protect his family the best he could. And that that Joyce had a nervous condition that caused her to become dependent on prescription sedatives, such as Seconal and Equinol, even attempting suicide at one point. And this is a quote from the book. Lionel devoted to his career and his study with a tendency not to notice emotional fragility. Joyce dedicated to impinging her needs upon the world and having account taken of them. And Joyce had a long training of self-pity for which she could not be held to blame. He, her father, was a severe alcoholic. Wow. And and this is the perspective you get from the author the whole way through the book. Wow. Because, yeah. So I know I actually have a lot of thoughts on this because 
of for the same reason that you were looking into it. It's like, mm-hmm. where's her perspective? Right. If you start noticing some things, you start noticing some things. Right. And I him. noticed some things and this is what led me down this rabbit hole. So yeah. during a difficult pregnancy, so apparently Joyce got very sick during her pregnancy with Jeff. It happens to a lot of women, but I don't think there's much care taken back at the time she was pregnant with him in 1960. No. Mm-hmm. But Joyce became very sensitive to smells and sounds, and Lionel would confront neighbors in their apartment complex to help Joyce out. This is according to Lionel and the author. They So they moved to a house because apparently she was never happy. And this was a claim that Lionel made in his book, A Father's Story. Right. Hmm. It was allegedly difficult on Lionel as he had to work and get the groceries. Um, <laughs> let me, let me That's get so hard. Well, let me come back to that. So after the baby's born, apparently she was still having issues with this and life was really tough on Lionel as he had to work and get the groceries because Joyce did not have a driver's license. Huh. The, the only time Joyce was able to leave the house was when they went on a Sunday drive. <gasps> well, no wonder that oh explains so much right there. Yes, wow. And and I'm, I'm pretty sure she had a driver's license by the time she died. So I have so many thoughts on this. Like, why weren't you getting her driver's license? Why weren't you she taking driving mm-hmm. lessons if this was causing a burden? No, no, no. And, well, this is the thing. Yeah. The the pathologies get clear quick with them. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, je- the control freakiness, you know, mm-hmm. his whole Jeffrey's Dahmer thing was all about control. Right. Yeah. And makes me wonder how much his father was controlling his mother. I think he was doing a lot of oh, control. see that he was. And it gets better. Wow. And gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Joyce and Lionel had their second child, David, at the insistence of Joyce, at least according to the books. Even though she was uh-huh. struggling, according to Lionel, with drugs and such, He decided not to upset the apple cart by saying no to a second child. It would be easier than arguing with her. (laughs) That makes zero sense. Yeah. He's the one in control of everything going on in that household. It sounds like to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also you have, so, so, (laughs) so the apple doesn't fall far, right? Right. We have mom, we have mom taking drugs, right? But we have Jeffrey Dahmer administering them. Mm-hmm. to keep them sedate doesn't want them to move around a lot and doesn't want them to and i'm like ooh, where might we have seen this pattern before well and there was a dateline interview um in 1993 where they, there is a little brief snippet yeah. with his mother and she does admit that Which, she was on drugs but she said i was prescribed by the doctor this medicine for mm-hmm. issues i was having she never got into specifics right. about it was so the only people mm-hmm. we have saying it was certain things are is Lionel. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how much of that is true. And it could be, it was second all. I'm not going to say it wasn't, but mm-hmm. this is also the time when doctors were quick to prescribe sedatives to mothers who were overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the thing. It's the 1970s. The marriage is barely managing at this point. They are close to divorce. The tipping point was Joyce's alleged affair. So her her father dies. She goes to the funeral. Her sons and her husband do not come with her. Oh, she goes by herself to her father's funeral, and while she's there, she has an affair. 
So Lionel, when he learned of the affair, and apparently they were already discussing divorce at that point. Um, but when he learned of the affair, he's like, I'm hiring an attorney. And he did. And he sent a letter via registered mail to Joyce, informing her that she had one week to leave the home. Oh, my God. Yeah. But ultimately, it was Lionel who left. He moved into an apartment and Joyce stayed in the home with the boys. Yeah. Back then, they were going to side with her. Lucky her. Yes. Yeah. Well, to a degree. He, to a degree. If he's what, well, if he's what I think he is. Yeah. And I have definitive thoughts on that. Yeah. He would have taken her for everything, left her in the street. Right. Happy. The divorce mm-hmm. was contentious, to say the least. Lionel mm-hmm. would insist to his sons and the court that Joyce was crazy. I mean, he literally told his sons, your mom's crazy. She's mm-hmm. insane. Oh. The court ordered a psych evaluation of Joyce. Apparently, Lionel made it his business to give the psychologist detailed notes of Joyce's pill usage and behavior, including her refusal to have sex with him. <laughs> I wonder wow. why. Yeah. According to the book, quote, the psychologist noted that Joyce Dahmer suffered from very severe emotional problems. She is constantly angry, frustrated, and demanding in her interpersonal relationships. She insists on interpreting the motives of all those around her and seems to deny anyone's right to discuss her own behavior as it affects others. End quote. Can you imagine professional? Yeah. Professional gaslighting. It is. Well, and it's wow. it's taking the perspective of the husband. That's what I mean. Yeah, I know. It's like systemic narcissism. So my and impression, we had to deal with that. Yeah, I have my own definite thoughts and I'll, I'll get to them here in a second. But you would think yeah. that someone with such emotional problems would lose custody of her children, right? Mm-hmm. Nope. Not only did she keep the boys, but she was granted the divorce on grounds of Lionel's gross neglect of duty and extreme cruelty. <gasps> Wow. So her her attorney did his job. Yes. Or her yeah. job. Not only That's that, great. but she was granted a restraining order against Lionel. And Yay. she was a, and she was afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Lionel was not allowed to go to the house, like at all. She was also granted alimony and child support. Now I suspect so these are daddy issues, not mommy issues. Oh, they're so mm-hmm. yes. Yes. One of the conditions imposed with the divorce, though, was that Joyce had to remain in Ohio with the boys. She was not allowed to move without approval of the court, much less Lionel. Mm -hmm. However, as Zelda mentioned earlier, she moved back to Wisconsin. Why? According to her sister, it was out of fear of Lionel. Yep. Now, a lot's been made about her not taking Jeff with her to Wisconsin. I'd like to note that she left Ohio the same month that Jeff turned 18. He was a legal adult. He wasn't unable to take care of himself at this point, you would think. Technical minor. So everyone's like, oh, she left him alone. Well, he was 18. She also says that she tried to convince him to go with her. He Mm -hmm. chose to remain behind. So she wasn't leaving him. She was trying to get out of a situation that she feared. This was Mm -hmm. what might happen. So with all this information, including the one interview she gave on Dateline NBC to Stone Phillips, I have my own thoughts and opinions. I'm in no way saying that Joyce was the perfect mother. I'm sure she was on medications and there was a lot of challenges there. But there's so much we don't know. However, taking the word of Lionel and only him (laughs) is irresponsible and suspect. He set out to demonize Joyce. Wonder why. At every turn. 
as being the one to blame for Jeff's murderous ways. Mm-hmm. My suspicion is that Lionel was abusive, mentally and emotionally, perhaps well, we even physically. Yeah. Here's another note from the book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. He, and this is referring to Lionel, also did some of the housework when she was laid low with nervous exhaustion and pills. I'd like to note before I continue with the quote, maybe she was under nervous exhaustion and on pills because of how he was treating her. Mm-hmm. Just a thought. Reactive abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reactive abuse and depression. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff sometimes saw his father hit his mother when she was screaming and Lionel felt she needed to be calmed. You'll love this last wow. part of the sentence, but never brutally and never with malice. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's malice. If you're hitting somebody. Yes. Okay. Can I hit, can I slap, can I bitch slap him like from the hip? Yeah. Well, he's, he's still living. So I guess you could. Yeah, I know. Can I? Because it's without malice, sweetie. Yeah, that's true. I do this without malice and with all the love in my heart. <laughs> so in my opinion, Lionel, who is still living, never takes responsibility for his role in raising Jeff. Like he never takes any responsibility. It's all no. everybody else. Glaring omission. Right. That's a glare. Actually, not a glaring omission. It's a glaring feature. Yeah. Now his book and, and it's so funny because as. And he capitalizes. Yeah. As um, Storm Phillips was talking about his book and he was telling this to Joyce going, well, what about how he, he does this yeah. and he says this, he, he talks about looking inside himself and trying to find out the role he may have played. Mm-hmm. I don't buy it. I think he was just gaslighting throughout that book to portray himself as a victim himself mm-hmm. an yeah. innocent who, who had to suffer. Mm-hmm. So that's his whole, I know. I think he, yeah, I think you're right. So I think a lot there's a lot more to it and I feel so bad for Joyce and the demonization she has faced and still continues to face because people still think it was her. Yep. And I'm not saying she didn't play a role in raising him. But notice, notice something, right? Notice that it is, she was gaslit and my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. This is, I'm going to specify this is 100% speculation on my part, but having a lot of experience with really scary narcissists that's another story for another time yeah um and having taken the master class on it literally yeah right um i noticed some patterns of so we've got reactive abuse for her mm-hmm. right so she's the only one that's labeled as mentally ill right as a probable reaction because we know what narcissistic abuse what the effects of narcissistic abuse look like right we know what they look like And they look like what she was going through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that even in that, even in that time, when it was extremely difficult to prove that men were cruel because they were allowed to smack their wives without malice when they were hysterical. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Like for, for all of those things to have happened, it would have had to be so evident, inarguable and in your face. Right. Right. So she clearly was not the only mentally ill person in that scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and right? so now I want to talk about a few things I did learn about Joyce and Lionel, as well as their other son, David. We'll start with Joyce. After her interview in 1993, Joyce never finished the book she contemplated writing. She, she moved to Fresno, California in the late 1980s. So remember, she goes to Wisconsin to escape. 
In the late 1980s, she moves to Fresno and got a job at a retirement residence center. Then in 1991, she took a job with the Central Valley AIDS team. By the time of her death in November 2000 of breast cancer at the age of 64, she had made a difference in her community through her work and also by helping found the living room and HIV community center in Fresno. Wow. Jeff's brother, yeah. David Lionel Dahmer, who was born in 1966, changed his name. I did find him. I know where he oh, works wow. and I, he lives, but I'm not going to out him. Because yeah. if he did that, he didn't want to be found exactly. I'm yeah, sure other people right. could find him, but he's not right, looking to be we'll publicly to them. revealed. Right. What I can say, though, is that he's successful in his career. He does a Good lot Lord. of great work Thanks. for his community. Right. Over the oh. years, he's volunteered for food pantries, the United Way, homeless shelters, and a group who provides free medical services to those in need. Not only mm. that, but he works for a nonprofit focused on ending homelessness. Mm. Wow. Mom. He's amazing. Been, sounds like mom. Yeah. Yeah. As for Lionel, who is now 86 years old, he recovered quickly from the divorce. For a man mm. thrown by an affair that happened in September 1977 and a divorce just nine months later, he managed to marry on Christmas Eve in 1978. To Sherry. Oh, just how curious. Yeah, just five Poor months Sherry. after the divorce was finalized. Tell her what she's won, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry recently died, like as in, I think, just a few days ago. Whoa. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And okay. they had been married for 44 years. Yeah. Wow. I'd be interested in how she felt about that, Marion. Yeah. So let's get started into the tree. Yeah, I'm really interested. I'm really interested in this for a few reasons. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.